PM board bombs. Now, here's doctors Iltafat Hussein and Blake Briggs. Welcome back to EM Board Bombs. I'm Iltafat Hussein, joined by our co-host, co-founder, Dr. Blake Briggs. What's up, Blake? Hey, thank you for giving me credit, co-host and oh, co-founder. Oh, stop it. You're always trying to get credit for this, you know? <laughs> you know? It's still funny, though, when you were leaving to you know, go to Alabama for your faculty position, I would have people coming up and saying, hey, who are you going to replace uh, Blake with? <laughs> <laughs> I told him, I was like, you know, this is not, you know, this is myself and Dr. Briggs. This is a, a partnership here. Yes. The best was when people ask me, they're like, so when the studio moves to Alabama, who's going to be doing the podcast with you? I said, uh, Dr. Hussain. <laughs> Like what? What is this? This is okay. Look, it came out awake, no doubt. Hey, this Wake isn't Forest this repping, isn't SNL. But... We don't replace the crew. <laughs> this is a recurrent thing. <laughs> Can I tell you something interesting? Yes, of course. Do you know that it's less than four weeks until the resident in service training exam? Dun dun dun! Can you add some music there? Some dramatic music there. If you enjoy EM Board Bombs but want a TikTok version of our podcast, that's what our Rapid Bombs podcast is. We prepare you for boards and clinical practice. That's the key. Don't waste your time just studying for boards. Do both at the same time. We just are about to hit our 200th podcast episode for EM Rapid Bombs. That's 200 Rapid Bombs of knowledge. Each episode is just two to four minutes where we drop high-yield bombs in question-answer format so it gets seared into your memory. On average, we drop like four episodes a week, so you get a new podcast delivered to you almost daily. You can sign up for EM Rapid Bombs on emrapidbombs.supercast.com and look at the show notes of this podcast as well. Yeah, and if you're not 100% sure if you want to sign up or not, we do have a trial option where you can sign up on a trial basis, uh, see if you like it or not. Uh, Lastly, we'd like to send a shout out to the hundreds of folks who've already signed up. I really appreciate all the support that the community's given us. It's pretty awesome. Hey, let's do the question. I'm really excited for the STEM. Uh, really excited. Uh, you did a master stroke on this. I really appreciate that. Thank you. I like when we're cordial and polite to each other once in a while, Dr. Briggs. Yes, Dr. Hussein. <laughs> a 40-year-old rapidly aging Harry Potter is participating in the Quidditch World Cup. Representing England, of course. His days of glory as a seeker have long faded, and he's now coming <laughs> off the bench for the English team. The English team's main seeker, unfortunately, gets injured, causing the team to bring in Harry. Unfortunately, Harry's about 20 years older than the average Quidditch player and gets hit by a bludger in the chest and gets knocked off his broomstick. Madame Poppy Pomfrey happens to be the healer witch to first get to Harry Potter on the pitch, not the field, the pitch. Mm -hmm. Harry is complaining of significant shortness of breath. He is tachypnic. Hmm. Madame Pomfrey listens to lung sounds using her wand. She hears diminished breath sounds on the left. She gathers vitals using her wand as well. He is tachycardic to the 130s and his blood pressure is 80 over 50. What is the next best step in the management of this patient? A. Intubation. B. 
insert two large bore IVs, C, needle decompression, D, tube thoracostomy, or E, chest x-ray. Hey, Dr. Briggs, what's the correct answer here? The correct answer here is going to be choice C, needle decompression. We should have said Madame Pomfrey should have utilized her wand for needle decompression, but we wanted to keep it legit. Yeah, we had to, we had to keep this very professional. Hey, what are we talking about today? <laughs> hey, so we're talking about pneumothorax. Uh, pneumothorax is any air in the pleural space. It occurs when air fills the pleural space, causing partial or full collapse of the lungs. Air can enter the space through communication with lung parenchyma or the outside environment. So there are two types, overall again, there are two types of pneumothoraces. You've got the spontaneous and the traumatic. Trauma is the most common cause of pneumothorax. So there are two types of spontaneous pneumothoraces, and it's not really important you know the difference between them at all. The primary spontaneous pneumothorax is due to no underlying clinical lung disease. It's usually due to these subpleural blebs or bolus ruptures. It's unknown how these form, but the classic finding here, and everybody knows this, I feel like, is that it's a tall, thin person, like 10 to 30 years old. They're always male, pretty much. Uh, the primary spontaneous pneumothorax is up to six times more common in men. And here's a board pearl right here. The biggest risk factor is smoking, by far. People think, oh, it's exercise, or it's body habitus, or it's being a male. Well, all those are potential risk factors, but by far the biggest risk factor is smoking. Guess how much of a risk smoking is for these things? The risk in smokers versus non-smokers is a difference of 12% versus 0.1%. Yeah, that's pretty huge. Yeah. Secondary pneumothoraces is due to some type of underlying lung disease, so like COPD, usually older patients, okay? And attention pneumothorax is this one-way valve phenomenon allowing air to enter the pleural space but not back out. And of course, increasing pressure we know collapses nearby structures and causes obstructive shock and more on that below. So Iltva, why don't you tell us about the clinical presentation of a spontaneous pneumothorax? So, spontaneous pneumothorax should be on the differential for any patient presenting with acute dyspnea or chest pain. Oftentimes, these patients, especially when it's spontaneous, it's happened to them before. So, symptoms can present either suddenly or be gradual and onset. Chest pain is often sharp, pleuritic, and unilateral. That's why when folks come in with, you know, especially chest pain, um, you know, you're getting that screening chest x-ray most of the time. Dyspnea may often worsen progressively as the pneumothorax expands. Symptoms are related to the volume of air present in the pneumothorax, but amazingly, there are cases of otherwise healthy young patients walking in a triage with dyspnea and complete collapse of the lungs, satting greater than 95% on room air. Vital sign abnormalities are key when assessing the severity of a pneumothorax. Look for respiratory distress. Sinus tachycardia oftentimes is the most early finding. You know, we can't emphasize this enough. The physical <laughs> exam to say. is extremely, <laughs> extremely, extremely unreliable as evidence has shown that the absence of breath sounds is provider dependent. So again, hey, Dr. Briggs, if there's one thing we want folks to take away from here, are you going to hear absent breath sounds in a pneumothorax? How often? Very rare. Rarely. Rarely. Okay, rarely. Oftentimes, you will still hear breath sounds when they have a massive pneumothorax. So please do not rely on that. Yeah, honestly, if you're trying to diagnose pneumothoraces by breath sounds, you're doing it wrong. Yep, exactly. You know, I know we're talking about spontaneous pneumothoraces, but the same goes for trauma. How many times in the trauma bay do you hear someone listen to breath sounds and are like, 
normal breath sounds. And everybody in the room's like, oh, no pneumothorax. And then you get the chest x-ray <laughs> or you do a fast exam, an E-fast. Massive. And you're like, oh, the lungs collapsed. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Anyway. All right. Hey, let's talk about the diagnosis here because it's not going to be clinical usually. An upright chest x-ray is the traditional first step in diagnosis, but it's amazing how much of a letdown chest x-rays are. The sensitivity of a chest x-ray for the detection of pneumothorax varies between, guess what, 30 to 75%. What the heck? Where did that come from? (laughs) In a standard upright view, air collects in the apical regions where a pneumothorax is most commonly seen. A pneumothorax is found by demonstrating a white visceral pleural line on the x-ray. You want to look for a lack of bronchovascular markings beyond this line. And only about 50 milliliters of air is needed to detect a pneumothorax in the upright x-ray. Don't let the first rib or clavicle distract you when you examine the pleural line. Supine x-ray is not recommended as it's easy to miss a pneumothorax, so use ultrasound or a CT. This is classically a pitfall in patients who are on the ventilator, and the, you know, you're know you doing a supine x-ray to look for either your tube placement or you know a patient that is um, hypotensive or hypoxic after you intubate them, and you're getting that supine x-ray, you may miss a lot of pneumothoraces. Ultrasound in the detection of pneumothorax is increasing. The sensitivity and specificity of ultrasound for the detection of pneumothorax is really good. It's like 87 to 97% respectively. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's certainly a lot better than listening to the... It's fantastic. (laughs) It's useful when a rapid assessment is required. It's much more sensitive than x-ray, and you want to look for lung sliding, which is like comet tails, these ants marching, and a lung point, which marks the edge of normal pleura to pneumothorax. The presence of lung sliding and a comet tail sign essentially excludes a pneumothorax. It's that good. And, you know, Again, get your practice. When you're doing your cardiac exam, I tell my residents this all the time, when you're doing your cardiac exam, for example, a bedside echo in the room or a fast exam, quickly look at the lungs. All you need is like two views, basically, one on each side. And I tell the residents, like, you know it's going to be normal in the vast majority of patients, so why don't get your reps in? And so you know when you're looking at that ultrasound, that is lung sliding because people can get fooled by what lung sliding looks like. And it's really important to see that just plenty of time so that when you know it, When it's not there, you will immediately act on it. CT is the gold standard for diagnosis of a pneumothorax. It tells us the location, the size, any loculations. An occult pneumothorax detected on CT is unlikely to produce clinical symptoms, and it's treated with observation if noted on imaging. This is usually more common in the classic trauma patient who comes in and gets pan scan, and they accidentally find an occult pneumo. CT is indicated when there is where the diagnosis is in doubt, so you shouldn't be routinely CTing your patients to look for a pneumothorax, that's for sure. Hey, tell us more about tension pneumothoraces. Ah, yes, the dreaded tension pneumothorax oh, yeah. on x-ray. It may, may demonstrate tracheal deviation to the opposite side. The, you know, quote, tension occurs when air in the pleural space builds up enough pressure to interfere with venous return. It's like this obstructive process that's happening. This is usually due to a one-way valve issue where gas enters the pleural space but cannot leave during expiration, right? And that's, again, one of the reasons why you penetrate that area. More gas increases pleural pressure and compresses the SVC. That's reducing venous return and eventual cardiac output, resulting in what? Death, (laughs) right? Hey, so this is really important here, and I'll say it louder for those in the back, because I know you're going to ask me to. Tension pneumothorax is a clinical diagnosis. 
What? Yeah, it's a clinical diagnosis. So if your radiologist is telling you that there's intention pneumothorax in the x-ray, I would one, you know, rush to see the patient and then two, come back to the phone and say thank you to the radiologist and then ask them to come clinically correlate. (laughs) (laughs) Ask him to add that line. Yeah, ask him. Can you? Yeah, clinically correlate. Hey, rule of thumb, though, um, you really shouldn't be relying on your radiologist to tell you, you know, that there's a pneumothorax. It's probably a little too late from the stand you should know by then your answer should be yeah i know thank you though thank you though but i already saw that thank yeah, you i put a chest tube in already there's another extra yeah. coming <laughs> so you want to look for tachycardia hypotension tachypnea jvd and changes in mental status so traditionally it's been taught that this contralateral shift of the trachea to the unaffected side and flattening of the diaphragm are evidence of tension but this is so untrue and it's really sad that people are still learning this because you're going to miss a lot of tension pneumothoraces until it's too late Radiograph findings for tension are usually completely absent, especially early on. And you want to catch these early on. This isn't like a, oh, well, who cares? Eventually we'll catch it. No, you want to have time to set up your chest tube. If, you're, if you have a large pneumothorax that needs to be addressed, you want to have time to address the patient's symptoms before you're doing like a crash thoracostomy, right? So who is unstable? Which, which patients are considered unstable with the pneumothorax? And it's really any of the following. Respiratory rate greater than 24. And it is kind of arbitrary. Heart rate greater than 120, hypotension, room air, oxygen less than 90%, can't speak in whole sentences. You know, it's a nebulous picture. Any one of these should make you think this patient is unstable. They need rapid assessment, rapid treatment. So what is the treatment? So when it comes to treatment options, they include either a tube thoracostomy, needle aspiration, pigtail catheter. You know, we have these thal quicks as well, or observation. These options are chosen based on the size of the pneumothorax and the presence of other type of pathologies, right? Pigtail catheter placement is being you know, increasing in practice due to the benefits of shorter hospital stays and fewer complications. But obviously, you know, this is limited uh, to the shop that you're at um, and also the comfort level as well. Any unstable patient is considered to have attention pneumothorax until proven otherwise. And those are going to be requiring rapid decompression right away. So we're talking about just needle decompression here immediately with ideally like a, like a 14 needle, um, putting that into the second to third intercostal space of the midclavicular line. And sometimes it requires more than one needle. Um, the other place is obviously the fourth or fifth intercostal space at the anterior axillary line. This is always going to be the right answer on tests, by the way, needle decompression. But in practice, if you've got an experienced provider there and you can do it just too fast enough, then that's fine. If you recall, Dr. Briggs, mm-hmm. I had a couple questions on chest tube placement, pneumothorax in our rapid bombs yeah. you know, podcast. And I talked about selecting tube size and one of the key dreaded complications of choosing too big of a tube Absolutely. when it's not necessary. Check out our EM uh, Rapid Bombs uh, you know, podcast for that question. Absolutely. If you're a premium member, you can, you can really hit that for the test. There's plenty of good test questions and test material on pneumothorax. So I know a lot of you are thinking right now about needle decompression versus some of you out there thinking, wait a minute. What if I don't want to do a needle decompression? I can do something called a finger thoracostomy. And it's kind of sexy stuff. Scott Weingart, other people talk about it. Needle decompression (laughs) has been the subject of criticism for many years. And I'm kind of a critic of it too, to be honest. As IV catheter needles have been found to sometimes not even reach the chest in 60% of cases due to chest thickness. Other times, a too long of a needle can damage the chest in certain patients, right? So needle catheters can also kink. They can compress. So 
this finger thoracostomy, meaning that you, you know, open the chest with a scalpel, stick your finger in and evacuate that chest cavity, knowing you're in the chest cavity. It's debated as a better method. People get into the weeds with this topic. We're not going to do that. All I know is I'm just saying that that is an acceptable alternative if you're an experienced provider, you know what you're doing as the initial step of opening the chest for a tube placement in a you know crashing patient. But that's besides the point here. On the test, in a patient that needs a rapid decompression, the test is always looking for needle decompression as your answer, followed by a chest tube it. placement. In real life, we all know this. Iltafat and I both do. We've put in plenty of chest tubes. You know that you can put a chest tube really fast if you're good at it, and you don't need to do the needle. But on the test question, they are assuming you're going in the proper ATLS standard pathway. Hey, tell us about what you do for small pneumothoraces. Yeah, so this is, again, a small, so less than three centimeters of the apex or less than two centimeters hilum. And uh, here is where you can do more observation with supplemental oxygen as first-line therapy. The key thing with this, though, is it's in conjunction with your trauma team or your CT surgery team, right? Because uh, you're not going to be demanding this patient at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. So obviously, you know, discuss with them what their treatment plan is going to be. But oftentimes, it's supplemental oxygen as first-line therapy. Normal lung reabsorption is around 1% to 2% of the pleura per day. Low-flow oxygen by nasal cannula, greater than 6 of flow, increases pleural reabsorption up to six-fold. So, you know, high-flow nasal cannula or BiPAP should obviously not <laughs> be used here, right? Because that can worsen a pneumothorax, <laughs> right? But you should be placing this patient on a decent amount of oxygen as well. The patient can be observed for four to six hours. You know, know, repeat a chest x-ray as well. If no abnormalities are evident and symptoms have improved, then you can discharge the patient with outpatient follow-up. But obviously, this is not something that you should be doing on your own. It should be in conjunction with your CT surgery team or your trauma team and what standard of care is at your shop. So if the patient is not improving, uh, thoracostomy can obviously still be used, um, you know, for these patients because if they're not improving, then you know you worry about some sort of deterioration um, or reoccurrence. For those requiring oxygen, obviously, you know, admission is warranted, and you need a chest X-ray in 12 to 48 hours. If resolution occurs, outpatient follow-up in two to four weeks. Hey, so what about large initial spontaneous pneumothoraces? Sure. So for this, your options include catheter aspiration or tube thoracostomy. The decision depends on the expertise at your shop and the severity of symptoms. Chest tubes and catheters have similar success. You know, a tube that's less than 22 French or a catheter less than 14 French are preferred. It is, and one of the reasons it's preferred, we actually talk about it in our our Rapid Bombs podcast, the sister podcast that we have. Uh, Check out some of the episodes of how we get into that and some of the key dreaded complications that it avoids when you use a smaller tube. Unless there's blood, fluid, or an empyema present, we recommend that, you know, like a catheter thoracostomy for all patients with a pneumothorax. I personally prefer using Thalquicks. I love them. Mm-hmm. If it's, you know, just air being evacuated, uh, set the tube to water seal. Again, that can help prevent uh, some complications as well. Yeah, I recall one time earlier in my attending career when uh, I called CT surgeon resident on call. And I remember I was saying, hey, we have this. I was helping the resident out because they were busy, and I was admitting the patient. And I remember I said, hey, we put this chest tube in this patient, pigtail catheter kind of thing. The, the resident on the phone said, why don't you use a large bore chest tube? I was like, well, you know, it's just air. We're evacuating, so didn't see the need, and that's harm for the patient, whatever. I'm like, oh, well, 
I think the biggest chest tube possible is greatest for evacuating that air. I said, yeah. I said, well, the viscosity of air is zero, so I really don't think that uh, <laughs> a big chest tube is going to really help. And uh, they went silent, and they were like, well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> I think they were still processing the fact that I used the word viscosity on the phone. Viscosity. Yeah. yeah, that was fascinating. I think they were going back to maybe, was it physics that they were yeah. going back to or yeah. recalling? Yeah, the two physics classes we had to take. Hey, let's do a summary here. Many patients with primary small pneumothoraces can be managed with oxygen, pain medications, and observation with repeat x-rays. A larger primary spontaneous pneumothorax or any secondary pneumothorax will often need admission and drainage. Drainage via catheter, thoracostomy, or a very small tube thoracostomy. Remember our question today. On boards, when given a tension pneumothorax and an unstable patient, needle decompress or finger thoracostomy is the answer. The test will never give both of these options. Tube thoracostomy is not the right answer on tests unless the patient is stable. We know in real life this is not the case, but just know this is the key difference. Love that summary. Thanks for bringing it back together. Again, appreciate everyone listening. You can find us at emboardbombs.com. Follow us on Twitter at emboardbombs, Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff, all the social stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all the socials. Yeah. All the socials. Um, I appreciate the follows and the support. You can find our premium podcast, EM rapidbombs.supercast.com it's in our show link as well it's like the tiktok version of our podcast rapid fire pearls for life for life as i like to say it is that life spelled with a y oh wow is that what the kids are doing these days i don't know i've seen it around i've seen it and it disappoints me (laughs) just like seeing just like working the pediatric ed and teenagers now have tiktok t-shirts on yeah i couldn't believe that I couldn't believe that. What is the world coming to I don't know. these days? I, don't I wonder know. if we can correlate TikTok sweatpants with ER You know visits. what the good news is, though? <laughs> what? At least it's not 20 years ago when we put 40 French tubes for pneumothorax. There you go. There we go. Least, and now yeah. we're talking about viscosity. All right. Now we're talking about viscosity. <laughs> yeah, the viscosity of air is zero for anyone that needs I feel to know like, that. <laughs> yeah, but I feel like we're going to get some sort of fact check happening here. Yeah, it's actually, you know, <laughs> someone's going to say, actually, on the, the planet surface of Mars. Technically, it- <laughs> technically, it depends. <laughs> See you next time. Hey, sign up for our Rapid Bombs. Remember IT coming up less than four weeks? Don't cram for that thing the night before. Feel confident in yourself. Learn better. Study better. See you next time. Nice pep talk there.